0: Action, excitement, horror romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? There be islands in the central sea whose waters are bounded by no shore and where no ships come. This is the faith of their people. Before there stood gods upon Olympus, wherever Allah was Allah, had wrought and rested Manayud Sushai. There are in Pagana, Mung, and Sish, and Kib, and the maker of all small gods, who is Manayud Sushai. Moreover, we have a faith in Rune, and Slid. And it has been said of old that all things that have been were wrought by the small gods excepting only Manayud-sushai who made the gods and hath thereafter rested. And none may pray to Manayud-sushai but only the gods whom he hath made, but at the last will Manayud-sushai forget to rest and will make again new gods and other worlds and will destroy the gods whom he hath made, and the gods and the world shall depart, and there shall be only Manayud-sushai. Hi, I'm Adam Prosser. With me is Phil Price. Hello. Doing, uh, as always, it's What Mad Universe, the podcast about pulp and the history of sci-fi and fantasy. Um, we're talking about a book, actually a couple of books, but the first one was published in 1905 uh, by Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett, the 18th Baron Dunsany. Um, also known as
1: Lord Dunsany.
0: Also Lord is Lord Dunsany. Uh, Which
1: we'll be referring to him as because the other name is...
0: Both long and ridiculous. And that is how he was always credited, with Lord Dunsany, so fair enough. Um, So he was the scion of a noble Irish family that traced its lineage back to the 12th century. Uh, Dunsany had had an otherwise undistinguished life to that point. He'd served in the Second Boer War, stood for Parliament as a Conservative, he lost, obviously, and had met Rudyard Kipling and William Butler Yeats, but had shown surprisingly little interest in literature, having only written some unremarkable poetry, However, the self-published book, The Gods of Pagana, attracted critical attention and was a financial success. A series of fables written in archaic language and purporting to be the scripture of a pagan religion of a lost kingdom. It was followed by another volume, Time and the Gods, in a similar vein and sharing the same setting. These two books and a few later stories became a bedrock of the modern fantasy genre, helping to establish the idea of what Tolkien called sub-created worlds and shared mythoses inspiring other writers from H.P. Lovecraft to Neil Gaiman. In many ways, Dunsany is the godfather of the 20th century fantasy genre. So, it's kind of, he's kind of a, you know, whenever we talk about this, I always feel like, you know, we we haven't read everything that's out there in the entire world. Mm. So, sometimes, you know, you want to be careful to make bold pronouncements about this is the first, this is the pivotal, whatever. But he really seems like he was one of the pivotal figures of modern fantasy. Yeah,
1: he's he's basically your favorite fantasy author's favorite fantasy author. Right,
0: exactly. That's a very good way to put it, yes. Uh, he, he was, um, you know, pr- not the first to sort of create a fantasy world and really bring it to life, but he really took it to the next level. Uh, yeah. I, I can't even think of an example before that where they really said, yeah, we're going to create a, a world and, and uh, the details of, in this case, the religion is kind of the focus.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, William Morris to a degree, but th- those aren't that interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, usually I, I would say, it's, again, he's not necessarily the first to do this, I mean, uh, but but usually when somebody's creating another, quote, world, it would be something like it would be an, arabesque fantasy like the arabian nights and they'd create a f- or they'd they'd do something something like the much later princess bride did where they created the fictional f- kingdoms of florin and gilder but it's still supposed to be our world right it's mm-hmm. not supposed to be uh you know set in another time in another place and this is actually sort of supposed to be our world he's a little vague about exactly what it is
1: yeah he mentions the north star and things like that but it feels like the um these are the the creation stories and the and the important myths of a culture that never existed. Right. Exactly. And it feels very authentic in the sense that it feels like these are myths that a culture would come up with. Mm-hmm. Like not, but also not any that uh, that it also doesn't resemble any that actually exist. Right. So it's really interesting that way. Yeah. And it does have. Uh, I mean, you said arabesque. It does have a lot of uh, Arabian and African influences in right. the um, in the style. While at the same time being um, its own thing right and uh, Dunsney was obviously interested in the uh, orientalism of the time and all that mm-hmm. which he later moved away from um, but uh, yeah there, there's a there's a lot of um these settings are sort of exotic and right
0: yeah in the late 19th early 20th century uh, if you really wanted to create an exotic fantastic world, it was sort of descended from the Arabian Nights. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, and occasionally Chinese or Eastern Asian uh, culture. But that was sort of the go-to for, here's another kingdom. And people didn't, you know, maybe even though it was the 20th century by then, people didn't fully know every kingdom and every continent in the world necessarily, mm-hmm. so they could sort of imagine there was a, a fictional kingdom. Although, to be fair, people make, st- into the 20th century, people were still making up fictional European kingdoms too, so yeah. it's not complete, you know, you're, you're just supposed to suspend disbelief, yeah, basically. Yeah, this
1: never felt like cultural appropriation in the sense that that uh, that a lot, that some of these that it could have been, I suppose. Right. It really, it does feel like there's elements taken from ideas, like mm-hmm. European ideas about what uh, Arabia is like, and at the same time being its own, its own world.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, by that time, there had been a few writers like uh, H. Rider Haggard and Francis Burton, who had literally lived in the Middle East or Africa or all these places, and they knew, and, you know, Rudyard Kipling, who lived in India and all that stuff, and I mean, they were still coming from the sort of imperialist Western attitude of everything, but they knew quite a fair amount about the culture that, they, that, that was there, so they could write at least somewhat convincingly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, in Pagana he any it's interesting because Pagana kind of shifts a little about what it's supposed to be as you say there's definitely parts he talks about the the the, the city where the caravans end and the camels yeah and so forth. there's
1: a lot of camels there's a lot of right um, scimitars and right uh, sort of just it evokes a certain period without actually mm-hmm. um, uh, but, recreating it in right, any way
0: right but then there's other parts where it actually seems uh. I would almost say South Asian. Like he taught, he, he almost describes it as being Pagana as being islands, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Well,
1: uh, Pagana itself is like heaven. I, I That's how I took it. Yeah. And the the people live on earth, and that's sort of outside of. Right. But yeah. Pagana is also, yeah, it is accessible by ship. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he
0: seems to shift a little bit. And I, even between the two books, I almost feel like he. he Changed his idea, and he says something about these are the lands of my dreams, yeah. or something. So and that's it's even-
1: common in in later Dunsey as well. So right, well, yeah, we'll get to that later. But yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, it's so. I mean, he he's he blurs whether it's supposed to be. Oh yeah, there's this kingdom off that you know very few people visit, and it's like this, blah blah blah, which is a, a standard jumping off point for fantasy. But then he actually goes to the extent of saying this is almost a hazy other realm, which is yeah, as you say, that's something he goes into with some of his other books as oh, well.
1: Oh, uh, something. I noticed uh on the reread for this podcast because i I read this years ago Mm -hmm. um but um it mentions africa early on because there was a famine like or a pestilence that came out of africa that's the only sort of real world geographical reference in this in this uh particular Dunsey later uh mixed real world locations in his fantasy world
0: all the time right uh
1: this is the the only one in this in these collections,
0: yeah. Well, as I as you say, yeah, later on, is it was that in the first book or the second S- book that first mentions? book, I believe?
1: Oh, okay, he mentions uh, the a pestilence out of Africa.
0: Oh, okay, all right, so yeah, no, it's it's it, you know, you get the in, as I say, you get the impression it's supposed to be a world reachable from our world, yeah. and then it, but then it's almost a dream. Uh, you know, there's a number of different techniques fantasy writers have used, especially around that period, to say this is why it's not quite our world, and there's but
1: and Dunstein doesn't really do that. He just sort of, he lets yeah. you fill in the blanks, I guess. Right. And he, he especially does that later where, he, like, uh, you can take a train from London to the edge of the world, <laughs> like, uh, sort of mixing even modern, uh, you know, Western uh, countries with uh, with weird fantasy things that couldn't exist in the modern world. Is that in Beyond the Fields We Know, or is that similar? uh That's in, um, that was in... Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that was, but it was from the collection, the Book of Wonder, I believe. Right.
0: Yeah, the Book of Wonder. That's not technically a paganic. No, collection. it's not pagan at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. No. So yeah, no. He d- he definitely liked that sort of whimsical. You know, just pretend this isn't real. And I mean, it's it, you know, as we've seen in the 19th century, and and the stories tended to be kids' stories, but he's. Writing for adults, but yeah, it's yeah, not, it's, these
1: aren't really kid appropriate.
0: Right? Yeah, I mean they're they're actually, I mean they're pretty dark in some ways. Yeah, um, and yet they have the sort of whimsical and just yeah, just go with it and use your imagination mm-hmm. feeling, which you're more likely to get in a kid's story. Where with an adult story, as I say, there, there's going to be some rationalization to let us suspend disbelief. Yeah, this is just like. I mean, it it always derived from sort of ancient fantasy writings where it was kind of like, oh yeah, well there's, you know, we know the kingdom next door and the kingdom two kingdoms over and then beyond that, who knows? And you can start writing about it. You can do the, uh, what's his name? Um. Uh, the guy who wrote the Herodotus, where he just starts making up stuff yeah. once he gets beyond like, the party, nose. Uh, knows. Africa
1: is an island with uh, dog-headed people.
0: Right, yeah. The further you get from ancient Greece, the yeah. crazier the stories get yeah. for everything is. And that, that became... Or in- the,
1: uh, the guys who have no head
0: but their faces on their chest. Right, right. I uh, forget what they were called, but yeah. Yeah, and the source of the Nile is a giant overflowing cup somewhere yeah. deep in Africa. People actually
1: literally believed these
0: things yeah. because it was written by people who... yeah. yeah I, I do kind of wonder, because Herodotus has always been criticized <laughs> for being, uh, like, literally for, I mean, of course, in the modern era, but there was a sense of, I think, even at the time, people might have, I, they believed him because he spoke authoritatively, but yeah. that's all, he was just making stuff, or maybe he was repeating stories, he'd heard. Yeah, so, uh, but. the
1: dog-headed people, I know people literally believed in that till quite late, till the medieval period. So. Right.
0: Yeah, uh, like Herodotus, along with Aristotle and a few others, was one of the great sort of bedrocks of when the Renaissance took off in the medieval like that was one of the learned, knowledgeable people you would mm-hmm. turn to to learn about the world. Um, so yeah, and Herodotus was definitely one of them. So it's it's it gets vague on whether I, you know how much of it was. I, I think Herodotus was writing seriously. I don't know. I haven't made a study of Herodotus. I shouldn't speak <laughs> with any kind of authority here. But I'm I, I mean. That's where the fantasy starts to come in. It's the gaps of knowledge of what yeah. people know. Uh, and even as late as the 20th century, you can sort of stretch that into the, the average person might believe there was some African kingdom and I can just make up a story. Even though the writer is not presenting it as you know official mm-hmm. and this is what's actually the case there's th- it's it's clearly a fantasy but your mind can fall into that slot of oh yeah a magical kingdom mm-hmm. somewhere and then of course the other thing as we've discussed in other shows was you know the historical the sort of prehistorical kingdoms or yeah it could called- be
1: like a like this is before history and history has just forgot about
0: all this exactly yeah right um I mean he does start literally the opening of the first book is what I read at the beginning there be islands in the central sea whose waters are bounded by no shore and where no ships come this is the faith of their people but uh, so it, it, that, and that's a present day statement Mm -hmm. but you could kind of do the star wars thing with that where he says uh, as i've said before in star wars they say a long time ago in a galaxy far far away but the people saying that if you read what george lucas intended they were supposed to be people writing that you know way in the future so star wars could still technically be in our future Mm -hmm. but everyone interprets it as the past basically because of the way it's like so something similar is happening there with uh, with what lord dunsany Mm -hmm. potentially did um so yeah you could say it was an ancient uh land as well but it's it's deliberately more than any other writer of that period or even many other periods that i can think of just very blurry on whether yeah it's and i think that's real. part of its
1: charm mm-hmm. part of what makes it interesting mm-hmm. because uh yeah it, it's just very uh evocative right and i think that's that's a word that describes most of Dunsany's work evocative because he right. he often especially later on um uh, really doesn't care about
0: plots, right? Yes, that's something about Dunsany I've noticed. He he writes, especially yeah, his, as you say, the later stuff. He'll tend to describe. He'll almost leave the plot off stage completely, yeah. and just describe this, cons- this situation. the situation, the setting,
1: the mood. Mm-hmm.
0: It's all about sort of the feeling that it gives you, right? Exactly, and there'll be ideas and things, but it's everything's kind of a snapshot, yeah. And his, and his stories tend to be fairly short. Um but yeah. it's a snapshot. He has
1: one uh, he has one collection called 51 tales. It's literally 51 really short stories. Mm-hmm. And there's one that's only like a paragraph long, and it's just a joke.
0: Right, yeah. And I mean in in this Pagana book, I mean it was as I said it was self-published. It must have practically been a pamphlet because it's it's something like even with larger text and full paragraphs mm-hmm. it's something like six, yeah, first, 70 pages yeah the first one is especially short yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, so as we were saying yeah it was actually self he 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 was a wealthy uh gadabout type mm-hmm. of person and he um and it was um it, you know even a number of people even the uh, in the uh, intro to To the book, they kind of mention it's like he didn't, he seemed like he was headed for a Bertie Wooster kind of idle, (laughs) uh, idle life as a, as a nobleman's son or whatever. And then suddenly out of the blue, he produced this book, which he, he paid to have published by himself. I forget the name of the guy. Uh, but it was a guy who's known as a poet and he didn't usually do this, but apparently he liked it enough that he said, okay, I'll act as editor and I'll, I'll connect you with some publishers, uh, which even a Lord needs a connection in the publishing industry. And, uh, so then he got this published and, uh, he, and again, he was friends with Gates. He knew Rudyard Kipling. Uh, there were a few other like uh, artists, uh, uh, artists and poets of the Irish, uh, literary scene that he was... Cozy with at that time, basically. Uh, so he definitely had an in basically. But the, but it's been commented that he had you know a couple of bad poems basically <laughs> under his belt, and then suddenly out of nowhere he produced this story, which is kind of kind of crazy. Yeah,
1: and he he went on. He became extremely popular in his time, right? Which is weird because he's so forgotten now. Like uh, I, I mean, I don't
0: know if that's necessarily true. Um, he's forgotten
1: in um, pop culture, right? He, but at the time he was he was part of pop culture. He was like um he did speaking tours and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah yeah lecture tours uh lovecraft by the way was a big fan of this yes. guy yeah. and was known to have uh visited one of his lectures at one point yeah he didn't sp- though he didn't speak to him
0: oh okay well <laughs> it sounds like lovecraft had trouble yeah, <laughs> approaching yeah. anyone anyway um
1: uh alistair crowley the uh the occultist was also a fan of uh dunsany oh uh he apparently wrote him uh after uh, Dunsey's story, the Hashish Man, mm-hmm. which is about a guy who smokes hashish and travels travels mentally to a uh, another land, uh-huh. sort of, um, yeah. Dun- uh, Crowley wrote, uh, "You obviously haven't smoked hashish," <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he was he was a pe- he was a fan. He he wrote a poem called "The Desert's Bastard Brother," which is about uh, mixing a bunch of Lord Dunsey stories together. Huh. Crowley did. Yeah.
0: Oh, huh, interesting. I t- that's, uh, yeah. No, I know he was extremely popular at the time. Um, with Dunsany, it's true. Yeah, you're right. Most people wouldn't necessarily know who he was. But if you talk to like a fantasist or a writer or yeah. someone, they will know Lord Dunsany or yeah. any kind of scholar. They'll absolutely know him because he is a huge, I mean, there was a period where H.P. Lovecraft wasn't that well-known either. Yeah, Like if true. you go back, you know, 20, 30 years, he was kind of only nerds knew Lovecraft mm-hmm. and they loved him, but you know the average person probably wouldn't have known who it was and even to this day there are probably a lot of people who don't know Lovecraft that well yeah uh but they know the impact that he's made on pop culture. And it's Mm -hmm. the same way with Dunsany, I think.
1: Yeah. Dunsany hasn't had any movies made of his work, to my knowledge. And I don't think, like Lovecraft, I don't think they would translate very well, (laughs) but it's at the same time, sort of a shame that nobody's tried
0: to. Well, You say that, but there's been five or six Lovecraft attempts, and and plus a ton of movies that are basically Lovecraftian. Yeah. Most of them aren't very good though. Yeah.
1: There's like, I like the reanimator, but that's really silly. Uh, From Beyond is the same
0: thing. Yeah.
1: And, uh, uh mouth of madness is ba- loosely inspired by him and
0: anyway we're getting off topic yeah lovecraft. <laughs> we'll do a lovecraft show someday we'll find a way to do lovecraft it'll be interesting but it, i mean when you read dunsany the influence of that he had on lovecraft is enormous yeah like you
1: cannot the dream cycle uh, lovecraft's dream cycle is straight up him trying to write in the style of lord dunsany right i think one of the early stories that uh lovecraft wrote was uh uh the doom that came to sarnath mm-hmm. and it has a lot of dunstany influence in it mm. uh it's basically a pagana story uh, right and um it has um a uh i believe it was a gate made out of one piece a single piece of ivory which right. is from a dunstany story so yeah 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 which oh. is a plot point in in a later dunstany story set right. in the dreamlands
0: right which is a, 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 a in in the collection i have that inc- it, th- that one is included as a pagana story oh, okay. even though you can argue it's not a pagana story but these
1: yeah th- it's it's set in the the idle days of the Yawn.
0: yeah idle days on the Yawn. Oh, okay yeah and uh and then the follow up story to that one and uh, beyond the fields we know this book that i have collects it with the other pagana stories oh, okay but you can make a it case it doesn't
1: yeah it's it's somebody from london traveling to the dream land of dreams so right not well, quite.
0: But, but then that does actually suggest, because I do, like I say, I believe he suggests that P- the Pagana stories are, the, the culture that produced the Pagana stories live in the dream world. Mm. So it's, it's this argument over, okay, are these Pagana, J- just like, again, going with Lovecraft, there was an argument over what is their mythos and they kind of assembled it after yeah. the fact. So even though there's explicitly. Yeah,
1: it's not, it's not uh, world building in the sense of Tolkien. No. And Tolkien, uh, Tolkien also read uh, Dunsany. Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, actually, wrote a uh, letter criticizing one of his later stories. The, uh, <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, the um, <laughs> uh, it was uh, the distressing tale of Thorgobrin the jeweler, which takes place mostly in like a what seems like a ancient fantasy world. Mm-hmm. But then at the end, one of the characters it says uh, she she never died, and she called her home the English Riviera, and lives there today, and sews uh, um, platitudes into doilies. Okay, <laughs> and Tolkien just you know, it broke his suspension of disbelief and he
0: really criticized Dunsany for that one. He, he's, he had a real hang up on, you have to keep, you know, you can't ever bring in anything from the modern world into a fantasy world. Yeah, He, he gave Lu- C.S. Lewis uh, a lot of crap for yeah. that too <laughs> when he was writing the Narnia books.
1: Yeah, he, he's, that seemed to be his thing. And also uh, the Warmer of Miraburus, which I'm sure we'll discuss one yeah. day. He, uh, I know you're a he, fan of that one. Yeah, yeah he criticized uh, that one for the naming conventions. Right.
0: Yeah, Tolkien had a really, really specific idea of what you were quote allowed yeah. to do. Like with he fantasy. liked he
1: liked these things, but he, yeah. he still criticized them. Right?
0: So. Yeah. Well, he criticized Shakespeare for God's yeah. sake. He, like uh, parts of Lord of the Rings are him literally going, oh, "I'll rewrite Shakespeare and it'll be better." Basically, yeah. Macbeth. Uh, the the anyway. Um. But yeah, no, it's it's yeah. There's a very clear um, Lovecraft influence, or uh, Tolkien. Tolkien's very clearly influenced by him yeah. as well.
1: And uh, but Lovecraft, I mean. As a thought, the blind idiot god who sits at the center of all things in Lovecraft, uh, the idea of a god who who uh, will one day wake and destroy everything. Right. Like, yeah, let's like let's, cl- let's,
0: shi- let, let's Let's explain it. It's, yeah. it's Mana yud is the creator of this world. Uh, he created the god... Well, what he did was he created the other gods. Yeah, and uh, then he slept. And then he slept. A guy called... Sk- another god named Skarl started playing a drum, which lulled him to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other... In his absence, the other gods were free to make the world. But someday Skarl, the drummer, is going to stop drumming. There's going to be silence, which somehow will wake up Mana yud He'll wake up and... Depending on which ver- which of the two books you read, either he'll do away with the gods and worlds, or the other gods will sail off on a ship, and then he'll do away with the worlds. Yeah. Um. And the the Hound of Time will come and eat the gods. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the they'll he'll eat all the gods, and then end with Mung, the god of death, fighting and, the god of time, and they
1: kill each other. Right. Exactly. Or, yeah. Uh, not the god of time, but the the Hound of Time. The, the
0: Hound of Time. Right. And then and then Skarl. Will just wander off somewhere, and <laughs> Manu Sushai will be free to make a new world, basically, yeah. which is which has a, a, a trace of um, Hindu or, or yeah. Buddhist. Uh, but uh, to it.
1: it's less horror based than Lovecraft's version, but right. the
0: influence is clearly there. Like it's yeah.
1: very clear that where he got this idea from.
0: Yeah, yeah, th- that's funny. That's the thing. I wouldn't call these horror stories. Oh, they're not at all. But but they have all those elements which you can see uh, woven into Lovecraft's stories, and like not just Lovecraft but other people. And there are some horrific stuff. There's one story of one of the one of the. There's a line of prophets that get described, and one of the prophets. um, you know, when he's young and, and he's chosen to be a prophet because he doesn't fear Hmong, i.e. death, uh, and he curses Hmong all day light and they elevate him to prophet, and he sits in, in his youth and strength and curses Hmong all day long, and everyone's in awe of him. And then as he starts to get older, he starts to say, you know, he starts to feel his back is sore and he's, he's starting to go, oh, it'll be great when I'm dead, basically. So he starts to praise Mung and Mung keeps going, shall a man curse a God, shall a man curse a God. So he starts praising Mung more and more and more. And then they talk about how he's still there and he's basically a pile of bones and he's still praising Mung, trying to get Mung to take him away. Yeah. <laughs> to death, basically. And again, that's not framed as a horror story, but it's pretty horrific. Yeah, You know?
1: There's also, uh, there's another one where, uh, a prophet, uh, Sees the gods beyond the gods of Pagana, mm-hmm. uh, or no? Sorry, this is later when they're sort of moving away from the central pantheon. So this is four four specific gods, right? And he sees uh, uh, two greater gods beyond them who are mocking them. Mm-hmm. So he goes and spends his his time worshiping those other gods who are mocking. Then he sees another god, and he basically this goes on until he's an old man and all his followers have left him, and he finds uh, the god behind the gods behind that god. And it's the original gods, that <laughs> right, right. and it's again <laughs> that he it's, had forsaken to uh, to follow the other gods. So right, right,
0: and and it's so there's a level of whimsy yeah. to it, but it's also you can see the cosmic horror yeah. that inspired Lovecraft coming out of that, basically, mm-hmm.
1: and also the, uh, uh, like uh, you mentioned, like uh, tales from the crypt, sort of, uh, um, ironic punishment, sort of thing.
0: Yeah, uh, a few people like that. There's there's also one about. Um, uh, the, uh, imbound who's kind of the most important prophet, the last of the line of prophets that get described. Oh yeah, he, uh, he
1: meets, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, uh, he, um, he curses the gods themselves with, uh, by telling them about their death and they, they're left questioning whether w- what he said was true.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. And then, and then, but then there's also, he meets the, uh, he meets the one God, uh, Z- uh Zobok- Zobokar, Zodrak, his name is. And, uh, um, He's a, uh, you know, he, he appears to Inbound and he says I was, he was a shepherd back in ancient, ancient times. And the gods basically uh, took him up to, basically play with him and said, what would you like? And he said, well, I'd like man to be wealth. So they created gold and wealth and all kinds of misery came out of that. And I'd like love and they created love, but everyone got, you know, jealous and jealousy and horrible. And uh, I would want man to create uh, wisdom, wisdom, and wisdom made man miserable and stuff like that. So he basically was begging inbound for forgiveness for giving all these things to mankind. Yeah. And, and, and it,
1: saying I, I was a shepherd. I did not, I couldn't. Not know, right. yeah,
0: exactly. So it was, you know, again. There's the, the, the as you say, tales from the crypt kind yeah. of uh, <laughs> irony going on in that one. Um, you know, for much of the early 20th century, uh, ironic twists were a big thing in, mm-hmm. in short fiction, and and you can see that's one of the oh well, oh Henry was the origin of that, I think. But but you can see it in Dunsany as well. There's there's a, more than a trace of that. Yeah. But as you say he's most, he's very he's very atmospheric. Uh Imbon's also interesting because so yeah, he he portrays this world of very like it's a pretty bleak world in terms it's it's all about the religion of this world and mm-hmm. about how the gods treat men and the gods are just bastards like they're
1: Yeah, they they're more Greek god than, you know, modern sort of Yeah. theological right. Uh you know, uh Pleasant gods.
0: Yeah, they're, they're not even, even, honestly, I know, yeah, Greek gods are pretty, but Greek gods at least are just really, like, selfish and mm-hmm. don't care what they do. These gods, like, go out of their way to, like, cr- do nasty things to humans because they think it's funny. Some of them do. <laughs> some of them, yeah. Not they're, they're, I guess, as with most pantheons, there's some gods who are maybe yeah. nicer than other And ones even based, but, but, but
1: even the gods are being played with by, uh, uh, it has um, fate and chance are playing right. a game with the gods, like, mm-hmm. uh, using the gods as pieces. Right. Yes. So that, and the... There's the story
0: about how it got started with Fate and Chance playing dice, and one of them, meaning the difference between, was it all destined or was it a random chance, basically. And one of them won and got to call the shots, but we don't find out which, we're not going to find out which one it was until the the end of the world, basically. Uh, Which, uh, there's much discussion of end of the world in this. Uh, They have a, they have a, they have an apocalypse. And again, you say that and it sounds really dramatic, but it's almost just kind of like, and then... Man, you just yeah, try to wake up.
1: It's it's sort of a a passing on rather than a, a going out with a bang sort of thing. Right. It's 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 just time moving on. Right. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Speaking of that, uh, there's one story about a a king who uh, wants to conquer time uh, because time is the enemy of all things, and you know takes away people, ages people, and so forth. So he uh,
0: travels into the kingdom of time and comes back aged. Right. And which, which that's, that's a bit like the, uh, the Greek story of, oh, I've forgotten his name, but there was the king who, uh, asked the gods for eternal, eternal life, but he didn't ask for oh, eternal yeah, youth. Yeah. And so he just got older and older and older, mm-hmm. and then he became a grasshopper, supposedly. Uh, so that's the origin of the grasshopper. But mm-hmm. the, yeah, it's oh, that yeah. kind of thing.
1: Uh, this also has some sort of, uh, that style of, uh. Uh, creation myths. Like, uh, there's a story of uh, Slid, who came down from the heavens. He's the god of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he came down from the heavens and uh, brought the oceans with him to cover the earth. And there was a war between the earth and the oceans. And uh, a mountain called Tintagan, that was the greatest mountain, uh, held at bay the, uh, literally, <laughs> the uh, the oceans from uh, completely consuming the earth. And that, that really feels like, uh, you know, this they had a mountain called Tintaggon that's next to the sea and they created a story around right. how it stopped the ocean. Like, it really feels like a real myth somebody would have come up with. Yeah, yeah.
0: He he He's definitely read... Dunsany had clearly read a lot of mytho- mythology mm-hmm. and, and fables and, and folktales uh, in a sense without making it... I wouldn't say they always feel 100% like... A th- like, you're right. The origin of that feels that way. It, I would say Dunsany feels like it it feels kind of like you're he- you're reading the Victorian or Edwardian era recounting of myths that have been passed down for hundreds of years because there's a there's a there's a modern polish on it uh, in a sense uh that it is you would get it's written
1: fairly archaic language i mean it's right. it sort of has a lot of repetition a lot of uh, well these and those and yeah, obviously
0: yeah. and uh, a lot of uh, just, uh, I would not do this thing. Right. Yeah. Well, what I'd th- the, in uh, a guy uh, there's a guy named Francis Burton who um, uh, he he discovered the source of the Nile River. He was a really interesting character in the 19th century, uh, and he's one of the fundamental translator the pr- uh, the big translators of the Arabian Nights. He's not the only one, mm-hmm. but his translation of the Arabian Nights is one of the. I, it was extremely popular in the 19th century when he put this out, and that would have been a big influence, I think, on Dunsey oh, yeah. his version of the Arabian Nights and it's got that Bretonian language to it. So in the sense that you're not reading, you're reading like the third or fourth iteration of it that's mm-hmm. been handed down to the 19th century and a 19th century person is trying to sound archaic as opposed to like the King James okay, Bible. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's 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 got that polish to it. Like like this culture has been around for thousands of years and they've polished their myths more and more and more over okay. the years. Yeah, uh,
1: there, and there's a change over the course of the two collections because... Uh, the original sort of paganas pantheon, which are consistent throughout the er- early stories, mm-hmm. eventually give way to sort of other gods that men create and so on. Yeah. And it feels like there's a there's a real gulf of time between these sections. Yeah. Yeah. Uh there's one story about uh a a giant statue that uh like the god is a a giant statue gathered the world under him mm-hmm. and uh um this man there's a in his town there's a pestilence so he goes to pray to the god but he finds writing at his feet that says it was made by
0: man Right so that, that's sort of... Um... Right, yeah, he kind of qu- calls into question how... The, the mythology itself calls into question how authentic the mythology yeah. is and whether you can ever understand the gods and know who they are yeah. and everything. The, so the first book, uh, The Gods of Pagana, yeah, that's got a consistent, as you say, it's like consistent scriptures and it's pretty short. So yeah. even though it's technically multiple stories, some of them are, as you say, like a paragraph long, mm-hmm. they're very short uh, and they go together and it's only a 70... 70- book volume. So you could see it as one big story if you want. Yeah. Uh, so it's internally consistent. So when the second book came out, apparently only a year later, uh, Time and the Gods, uh, he'd already, you know, he was revamping it in some ways. And yeah. Turning it into its own thing.
1: But it feels like, uh, once it feels authentic in the sense that there are lots of different versions of myths.
0: Right. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's how it feels. It's almost like, um, you know, the, the Eldoretta and the Prosetta or here's, yeah, you know, yeah. here's, here's the really, like here's Homer versus the, uh, what's the Ovid's metamorphoses, mm-hmm. you know, kind of that, it's almost that, uh, take on it. So you can almost see it as the second, the second volume of that. I, I should point out uh, almost everyone who talks about Dunsany, uh, Dunsany's writings at that point, uh, like what what inspired him to write this, uh, pretty much everyone mentions that he was reading Nietzsche at that point. Um, and if you know Nietzsche's impact on people like Wagner, Richard Wagner, um, do you know the, the ring cycle at all the operas Uh, there?
1: I mean a little bit.
0: I haven't actually watched it. The fundamental themes of, uh, how Wagner interprets, which of course they were ancient Norse legends or uh, Germanic legends. Um, and of course he sort of, he tweaks them to fit his mindset, but he's very big on the idea. Like the, the fundamental thing is that man is going to rise up and, uh, be almost not quite at war with the gods, but, conflict with them Mm. and I mean of course they're headed for Ragnarok or God or Damarung or whatever you want to call it Uh, the gods see their end coming and they see that by creating man they've created their end but that also might be the thing that saves them Um, and that was all coming out of Wagner and Nietzsche literally they were friends Uh, they knew they knew all this stuff and and it's very different tonally and style wise uh, but the, those themes are lurking at the back of what Lord Dunsany does as well. This whole sort of, um, you know, don't see the gods as like just fair uh, people who you should pray to. They, he literally says you don't pray to Manayutsu Shai. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: There's a there's a running thing. The temple of all the gods save one. Right. Because if you try to pray to Manayutsu Shai... He'll wake up and kill you, right? Exactly. And then go back to bed.
0: Which again is very Lovecraftian, yeah. right there. Uh, yeah, it's n- not that he will go back to bed. It's it's every time somebody prays to him, he gets a little closer to waking yeah, up. Yeah, basically. Yeah, that as well. Yeah. yeah. So don't don't pray. So so Imbound, who's the, the the prophet, is known as the prophet of all the gods save one, and it's the temple of all the gods save one. You yeah. do not you do not pray to Manu to because he's he's out of your uh, out of your league, basically. Yeah, um, he's the he's the god that the gods worship. Right. And there's another god, um, named, um, well, he's, he's actually described as the thing that is neither god nor beast. Yeah. Um. Trogul oh Trogul neither god nor beast no one prays to Trogul you do not pray to Trogul well sorry it's not that you don't pray to him it's that he doesn't answer prayers yeah and he represents uh, he has he sits at literally the edge of the cosmos uh, with a giant book and he fills it up with writing uh, and it starts white when he turns the page that's a new day it's white because the light has shone, he fills it up with writing about everything that's happening in that day, and by the end of the, the day, the page is black, so the sun is set, and it's gone dark, and he turns the next page. He never, ever flips backwards, and literally, uh, the, the, I think it's in somebody goes to see Trogul, and, uh, in, like, in a dream, and he says, can you, oh, can you go back, and I remember something really interesting happened, it was like, I do, do not turn back the pages of the book. They never happen. And you can pray to me all you want. I'm not going to change it. This is what happens. The pages turn. You can never turn it. And of course, that's the relentlessness of time and the fact that Mm -hmm. you can never go back and, you know, take anything back or go back to, you know, happier days.
1: And then there's uh, another version of uh, the telling, or once again, this is different versions of the same myth. Uh, uh, The idea of uh, that um, day and night comes from, uh, day comes from a... uh, little girl god playing with a golden ball that's the sun mm. and she keeps losing it and then it's night right. and then she finds then all the gods search for it and find it again and it just keeps happening over and over and over again
0: uh-huh yeah and that is yeah as you say that's very much authentic to how a lot of myths work yeah um you know they're
1: not cons- internally consistent but they have because different myths have different uh purposes
0: right right and it's so like
1: Zeus in one story might be uh, the antagonist and in another story be uh, beneficial to humanity. It depends on mm-hmm. what that story's, uh, what that needs to have, you know, a powerful person represent.
0: Right. And and, he, and by, you can argue that by the time, like when the ancient Greeks got, I mean, they were really sophisticated at a, a, eventually. And, you know, much longer they were looking back at Homer and all the, the myth, mythos. And by the time they might have tried to make something that papered over the inconsistencies. They were smart enough to know that, you know, it was kind of a, it wasn't a literal description of the world. It was a philosophical thing to consider. Um, And, and there's some of the, you get that in Pagana too. It's the writings of, in the story of a culture that is very, introspective and that's considering all this philosophical Mm -hmm. stuff as it happens Uh, as I said there's another thing that there's the story of the one guy um, because the gods are are very cruel in this the I uh, can't remember what why the gods uh, go I have I didn't reread Time and the Gods before this but there's the one uh, guy who g- gets everything taken from him by the gods he get, he loses his sight and his sound and all his memories and the gods take everything away from him uh because Oh he's, yeah I can't remember why either. Yeah, yeah. he was he he knew, it was it and again that's that is similar to Greek uh, myth where um uh, I think it was Tiresias, uh, who was blinded because he knew too much, but the gods blinded him because uh, he could see the not future. Not quite. Yeah, it's not Tiresias. It's a long...
1: It is Tiresias. He was blinded by the gods, but it's not because he knew too much. Okay. It, but it's a long story, so it involves gender switching and snakes <laughs> well, having sex. It's a weird story. <laughs> no,
0: that well, that's a separate <laughs> thing with Tiresias, if I'm not mistaken. No, no,
1: but it's it's it has to do with that. Uh, there was an argument between... Uh, he, Between Hera and Zeus about uh, which sex enjoys sex more. Right, yes. And uh, Tiresias, who had been both uh, male and female, said women enjoy it more. Yeah. And uh, so Zeus won, and Hera was mad, so she blinded him. Right, right. And Zeus gave him the gift of foresight
0: as compensation. Right. Okay, no, so so it wasn't Tiresias, it was the king who was hounded by harpies. Uh, he was blinded, and his f- and and the, they came and ate, and they always ate all his food and ruined all his food. Uh, uh, I'm not familiar with that one, but uh, that Jason, sounds and the Ar- like, okay. Jason and the Argonauts. It's they meet him and they kill the harpies for him, and he's very okay. grateful. But that's the thing: he was gifted with prophecy, and the reason uh, and Cassandra as well in the Trojan yeah. War. Tend- as a general rule, you would get people who knew too much and were too wise, and the gods would find some way of you know messing them over about that.
1: Yeah, one of the stories of. Uh- of uh I keep forgetting his name uh M-Bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, involves him telling a king that he'll die someday, and then yeah. Imbom gets taken away to be killed. So that's there's, right. There's multiple versions of his death too. So
0: yeah, yeah, and yeah, that was that's the last Inbound story. If yeah, I'm not mistaken, I think yeah. So. He, and it's very casual. Like <laughs> mentioned that he's just dragged off to be killed. He's been a major character in the story, and then it's, it, basically he he comes forward, and the king asks, "Will I die, Inbound? And Inbound says, "Your Majesty, yes, you will die. All things will die." And he goes, "Well, I know you're gonna die." <laughs> <laughs> and he drags him and he, and they said and the the guards took him away and then the last sentences and then there arose prophets who spoke not of death to the king. <laughs> yeah. And that's literally I think the last we hear of Imbon in yeah. that entire book um which is very funny. The other interesting thing about Imbon he's the one note uh, Dunsany apparently was not very religious. Um he's the and this is of course a very pagan mythos. He's the one note that maybe in, injects a note of Christianity into it. Uh there's uh, a, I didn't pick that up so There's one Moment. Well, like I say, he he sees the he sees forward into the future, mm-hmm. into a better world. At one point, and he literally describes uh, things like the Boer War, like the fact that they had. Um, uh, he describes seeing forward all the way into the future, including. Um, uh, wars that were fought with poison gases oh, and, yeah, okay. and things like that. So it's clearly him mentioning, you know, his own time frame. Yeah. And again, this is before World War One, so he would have been talking about the Boer War, but it actually reads like a prelude of World War One. But the big one to me is where... Uh, Imbon starts saying, "Well, you know what? It's all going to be okay, basically." And mm. the guy and the the people come to him and they say, "Well, but what about our enemies? Are they going to be, you know, thrust into a lake of fire and burnt?" Like very obviously, a, a you know, an unforgiving Old Testament mindset. And Imbon goes, "No, that's not going to happen." And the writing on the the mountain says, uh, "Thine enemies are forgiven." Mm. That's the that's the the sentence that sort of the that's the end of Imbon's statement, and that's kind of the big note of hope in this, other, after all the gods being jerks about everything. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's the sort I, I didn't of one really
1: note. pick up on that as a Christianity thing, but I, it reads that way. It's yeah. Christian
0: in the sense that it's forgiveness and it's yeah. hope. No, as no, I'm, to... I'm just
1: saying I didn't initially pick up on that. So, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: that that is... Does yeah. come across that way now it, that I think about it. It is the one note of you know maybe we're not all boned basically <laughs> in the in this mythology. You're like, oh, okay, so that's why you know the all the pagans of ancient days didn't just all commit suicide yeah, because um, their religion is so horrible.
1: <laughs> the, the last section in Time of the Gods is is a lengthy uh, bit where a king wants to find out about the afterlife, and all his prophets give him different versions. Right, and that feels like a summation of the whole yeah. thing in some ways. Yes.
0: Um, it's kind of like in, if you're familiar with the Mahabharata, um, the which is the Indian, the, the national epic poem of India. It's mm-hmm. kind of one of their fundamental, uh, it's their version of, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, if you mm-hmm. like. And uh, there's a part of it, which is considered to have been written later and inserted into it, uh, which is called the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and it's basically the conversation that uh, Arjuna, the king, has with his... Uh, charioteer, um, who is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Krishna in disguise. Uh, And they have a whole conversation about, you know, life and what's the, because he's literally about to declare a huge civil war that's going to tear his family apart and they're all going to murder each other. And he's basically saying, is this right? Should we be doing this? And they have a gigantic, you know, conversation about Uh, philosophy, life, the universe and everything, which I believe is meant to specifically have taken like a, like time slowed down and it took a thousand years for them to have this giant conversation. Um, And it's, so that's another thing that in some ways is echoed in that Mm -hmm. story at the end of Time and the Gods. It's that kind of like, okay, this is the real philosophical meat of everything we've been leading up to so far. So you can, you, you get that same sense that, you know, somebody took the the basic mythology and wrote a giant philosophical exploration mm-hmm. and added it to the story. Yeah, basically. Um, but yeah, it's 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 uh, it, it's very interestingly done in that way. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, from my understanding, Dunsney did eventually travel throughout uh, uh, the Middle East and Africa and whatnot, and apparently uh, that turned him off from his this style. So he moved away to other topics later on. Oh, interesting. Um, so he just sort of. I guess the the mystery had left, or the the sense of the sense of uh, exoticness had left them after he ex- actually experienced it.
0: Well, that's interesting. I beyond the f- uh, the story, the idle days on the Yan and um... oh,
1: that that's still from er- fairly early. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would... um, Be- yeah. His later stories I haven't really gotten into because. Uh, is absolute like last series is the Yorkin series, which is about a guy telling tall tales. So it's sort of right. It's more silly than anything. Yeah, I've heard um, about that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of. A... I've read one of them where he, he goes to Mars on an airplane and mm. and on the way back comes across a comet where there's tiny little elephants on it. Um, <laughs> it's it's a weird story. Well, he's always weird, Dunstie. yeah. Uh, it, but it's weird in a way that doesn't feel. That was actually the first Dunstan story I read, mm. and it doesn't feel like anything else that I've read from him. So. Hmm. I like his early stuff, early and mid-career stuff a lot better.
0: Yeah, I mean his, he, he wrote uh, one novel that I haven't read, which is apparently a bit of a nod to Don Quixote, but a bit more fantastical. Uh, it's set in, like, it's it's set in Spain. It's got a Spanish knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he wrote The King of Elfland's Daughter, which is his best-known novel, I believe. Which I haven't read. I have. Uh, it's very good. It's, that is a very huge influence on Neil Gaiman. When you read okay, it, you're yeah. like, yeah, Neil Gaiman oh, definitely uh, knew yeah, this. Oh,
1: yeah, Neil Gaiman, there's a story in uh, one of the one of the m- mid-career uh, Lord Dunstany collections uh, where uh, about um, gods in the modern day. It was Odin and Thor traveling to Stonehenge. And it's very... it's. I mean, yeah, I read that and like, this is where Neil Gaiman got American gods from. <laughs> yeah. it, there's no other explanation. Like, and Neil the, Gaiman was known to read Lord Dunstany, so oh, there's he, no...
0: He's And he's never made a secret of it that yeah. he loved Lord Dunstany. Like, yeah. King Ralph and his Daughter feels a lot like... Um, uh, stardust in many yeah, ways. Yeah, it's got. That. It's about humans crossing the. I mean, it's a. Ve- it's a different story, but it's humans crossing the veil into quote elfland, i.e. the lands of fairy. Um, and it's got. It's got that same style. But yeah, he tended to write European style fantasies after later on. Point. Yeah. yeah, it stopped being that sort of exotic uh, thing. Yeah. Um, um,
1: I mean, he. It uh, was influential in some ways. Like uh, one story he wrote later on uh, was called the uh, the House of the Knolls and he created the word Knoll uh, and, uh, Dungeons and Dragons picked it up. They spelled it slightly differently, but, uh, yeah. So that's where gnolls come from.
0: Right, yes. And they're, they're like little, hy- I, I am a guy in who lo- doesn't play Dungeons in, and Dragons. Uh, in, in but-
1: Dunsney they're not described. Mm. Um, in, uh, Dungeons and Dragons they're hyena people. Right, yeah.
0: That's, that's, what's, what's the story called?
1: Uh, the House of the Gnolls.
0: Okay, G-N-O-N. L-E-S, right? Uh, yeah, yeah that's and the Dungeons
1: & Dragons is spelled with two L's and
0: an S. Right, right. No E, yeah. yeah. As we've seen, Dungeons & Dragons borrows from a lot of yeah. sometimes obscure, sometimes less obscure fantasy yeah. things. Uh, that was definitely an influence. Anyway, I think uh, we're hitting the end of the story yep. here. Uh, so let's... Uh, the. So, the pages of uh, Trogul's book have grown black with writing, signifying that the day is turned to night and Sish slays the hours as they come, so it's time once more to say goodbye. This show was produced by Alex Ross, the mirthless god who knows the secrets of Manayud Sushai, and the theme song was by Jack Fierick, who beateth his drum to soothe Manasud Sushai to sleep. We're Adam Prosser, the prophet who speaks not of death to kings, and Phil Rice, who was but a shepherd and could not know. Uh, We'll be sailing down the River of Silence on our Golden Galleons, but we'll see you again in two weeks. Until then, trouble not, Manayud Sushai with your prayers.